Greetings from Quail Lakes Baptist Church in Stockton, California. Thank you for your interest in our downloadable messages. Our more recent teachings, such as Pastor Mark's current sermon series, are always available on iTunes. However, for a more comprehensive offering of Quail's Bible-based teachings from Pastor Mark and others, we offer an extensive archive of downloadable sermon MP3s on our website, as well as information on our fellowship and our ministries. Please visit us online at www.qlbc.org. These messages are also available on CD or cassette. For more information, please call our church office at 209-951-7380. We trust you will be blessed and edified by what you are about to hear. Thank you for listening. Today I'm going to ask you to find two passages as we prepare for the message. Go ahead and find Isaiah chapter 61 and Luke chapter 4. Isaiah chapter 61 and Luke chapter 4. We'll find both passages. We're going to start in Isaiah. In this Advent series called Waiting for the Messiah, we've been weaving together the prophecies regarding the Messiah and the fulfillment and answering some questions. The question today is, what will the Messiah do? And the key concept is the answer. He will bring comfort and freedom. He will bring comfort and freedom. Isaiah 61, put a bookmark there, and then Luke chapter 4, find that as well. And while you're doing that, I'm sure this is true of you as well, but I am so pleased always every year with the music of Christmas. When we get to come back to singing the, the songs of Christmas year after year, I just have a sense of, of joy. It just, I know a lot of it is probably nostalgia. You know, I'm probably connecting emotionally to past times when I sang the song and memories of Christmases gone by and those kinds of things. But it's not only that. It's also that the message of the songs is that a Savior has been born for us. The greatest rescue mission of all time has taken place. God the Son has come to give us hope and a purpose, salvation and forgiveness. That's good news. That's great news. And it is the essence of that news, the gospel story, is why Christ's followers are not just singing at Christmas. We're singers all the year round. We are people filled with song, the song of our salvation in our Lord. As I thought about that and how unique that is really in our culture. You know, there's not many groups of people who get together and sing out loud. Maybe there's the, you know, the Star Spangled Banner before the ball game. But that's about it, right? Some of you may be in some choirs or, or maybe in some other places. But it's not too common that we come together in a place and we sing. Usually we listen, but we don't sing. But in church we sing because we have something to sing about, a Savior. In 2011, Steve Martin appeared on the David Letterman show. And for his little uh, act in that show, he sat behind the piano and he said, I want to sing you a song. I don't know where he came up with this, but he said, I want to sing you a song. And the name of the song is... Atheists don't have no songs. And I remember, I don't remember the tune, but this was the lyrics of that song said this Christians have their hymns and pages, 
Hava Nagila for the Jews. Baptists have Rock of Ages, but atheists just sing the blues. <laughs> Romantics play Claire de Lune, born again sing He is Risen, but no one ever wrote a tune for godless existentialism. For atheists, there's no good news. They'll never sing a song of faith. In their songs, they have one rule. The he is always lowercase. I don't often look to Steve Martin for my theology. <laughs> but that is a good point. When we sing about our Savior, the H in he is uppercase. Hope has come in the form of a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why we sing. And Isaiah, in Isaiah 61, where we look today, 750 years or so, by this time maybe a little less, prior to Jesus, he saw that this would be what the Messiah would be like. Let's read. Verse 1, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor." Well, Isaiah is saying those words. What he's actually doing, maybe even without knowing that, is as the Holy Spirit inspires him, he's giving us a job description for the Messiah. For he who will come in the name of the Lord as the perfect representation of the Lord as the Word of God. He says the Messiah will bring good news, good tidings. But good news can only be understood as good news as you compare it to the bad news that the good overcomes. I don't know if you notice that in that passage, there's a lot of naming of bad news, things that we wouldn't want to experience. But in every one of those, the, the message of the Messiah overcomes the bad. In fact, there's seven of them. I'm going to run down them really quickly. He says he comes with good news for the poor. Being poor is the bad news, but the good news overcomes it. Interestingly enough, that word poor is a very flexible word. It can mean without money, but it can also mean without influence, without power. It can mean the meek and the humble. And when you think about it, that makes sense. It's really two sides of the same coin. Because in the ancient world, as well, in, as well as in our world, it is those who have money who have power. Those who are the rich and the arrogant who tend to call the shots and tend to make the way. But Isaiah is saying, when the Messiah comes, it will not be the movers and the shakers who feel His blessing as much as those who understand that they have need and reach out for help for that need. And the need is going to be met. It's, he's not saying God's going to give you a big fat check so that you can change categories and become the arrogant and the rich. He's saying he's going to bless you with just what you need. It's going to be good news for the poor. Secondly, it's going to be good news 
for the brokenhearted. Because there is one who comes, he says in verse 1, who is going to bind up the brokenhearted. Stop the bleeding, if you will, of your emotions. In the season that we're in, every year we pause to think about how all of the expectations of happiness affect those who have experienced a sadness. Some of us have felt loss. Some of us have felt grief. Some of us are in situations where we are questioning and and really maybe we've been victimized by someone else or we've acted out in a way that has brought shame upon ourselves and it's difficult not to be brokenhearted. But the Messiah comes and He's able to perfectly bandage the brokenhearted to heal that sadness, to give you hope. Thirdly, He says, He proclaims freedom for the captives. There is one who will set us free. Here's Jesus speaking in John chapter 8. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. We can be set free from that which enslaves us. And very often that which enslaves us began as a choice. Do you know that? A choice to to just wander a little bit away. That looks like fun. That that looks good. This is just how I am. I'm going to just give in. And those choices become labels. And those labels talk about that which enslaves us. But Jesus can change the label. That's the message. The Messiah can set you free from that label. Sometimes we carry the label of the worst thing we've ever done. The worst moment in our life, somehow that becomes what we are, the label we bear. Maybe it's drug addict, or maybe it's sex addict, maybe it's liar, maybe it's practicing homosexual or alcoholic or chronic codependent or thief or cheater or whatever it is. Pretty soon, that's the label that we identify with. That's how we see ourselves, but you don't have to wear that label. You don't have to be enslaved there. Jesus comes along and He says, I can change the label, and the label is now one who is loved, one who is pure, one who is forgiven, a new label, and that's good news. And He goes on to say, He proclaims release from the darkness for the prisoners, the opening of prison doors. When this portion of of this Scripture was translated from Hebrew into Greek, it took on a little bit different sense because the Greek sentiment of the translation of this passage here was giving sight to the blind. Maybe your Bible kind of hints towards that in that passage. And here's how it goes together. It's a word picture. It's the idea of the prisoner in a dungeon cell is in the dark. They can't see anything. The world is passing them by. They don't know what's going on. They're trapped there, blind to the reality all around us. But when you open up the prison door, the light comes flooding in. And all of a sudden, that that prisoner inside that dungeon can see for the first time. He can emerge from the little world of darkness that was all that that they knew, but now they know what it's like to walk in the light. That's the ministry of the Messiah. 
And then he goes on to say, to verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, favor. That's the fifth way that the Messiah overcomes bad with good. See, here's the bad embedded there. The bad is over time in the nation Israel, what happened is people and land drift away from God's design. Over time, the land change, changes hands, and, and the land is overused for farming as people are greedy, and people get into debt, and soon they're in bondage to one another for debts and these kinds of things. And so, the Lord built into the law of ancient Israel a way for people to be set free. It started, it was a two-step process. It started every seventh year with what he called the sabbatical year. When the land was given rest, farming stopped so that the soil could replenish. And during that year, the slaves were set free. Those who were in bondage, maybe because they owed a debt, they were set free, the debt considered to be paid. But that's not the whole story. At, at the end of the 49th year, going into the year it was called Jubilee, the property that had changed hands over the course of the, of the span of the 50 years was reverted back to the original owners. And the slaves were set free once again, again and deaths were canceled. It's, it's as if God built into the culture of the ancient Israelites a reset button. And in the year of Jubilee, you hit the reset button and everything goes back to factory standards just the way that God envisioned it with the tribal inheritance and all the land ownership and all those, that kind of thing. Can you imagine how radical that is in a society? It's so radical that most scholars and historians, there's a great debate as to whether the Jews actually ever did that. But it was called for in the law. But notice what the prophet says. The prophet doesn't say that when the Messiah comes, he's going to enact the, the Levitical system. He says when the Messiah comes, he can proclaim Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. In other words, he can just call it anytime he wants. He's not bound by the calendar. He directs the calendar. He's in charge of the calendar. And so when he calls Jubilee, it's the year of the Lord's favor. The sixth thing that's overcome, he calls for, is a day of vengeance. Here's where it's important that we understand the setting of Isaiah. By this time in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is speaking to the captives in Babylon. They are in, under bondage. And what he's saying is, is there is ultimate freedom ahead. It, and when freedom comes, justice will be served and payback will come to the enemies. In other words, the oppressors that are now imprisoning you, they will be punished. And for the Jews far from their homeland, that's good news. The seventh piece of good news is that comfort will come for all who mourn. Whether they're mourning loss or mourning in a sense of repentance, the prophet visualizes what mourning looked like in ancient Israel. So look at verse 3, and I'll just kind of name the things that would be associated with mourning in, in ancient Israel. The prophet says that they would normally, if they're mourning, they would put ashes on their head. He's saying that you're not, when you put ashes on your head, God will give you a crown instead. 
He says they would, they would not anoint themselves, that the daily cleansing ritual of anointing with oil they wouldn't do when they were in mourning. But the prophet says God will give you oil for that purpose. They would tear their clothes and their garments to show abject grief. The prophet says God's going to give you new clothes. Everything you look to as a signal, the fact that you're in mourning, God's going to reverse because mourning will be turned to joy. This is the ministry of the Messiah. Isaiah describes it. So fast forward now. More than 700 years where this passage intersects with the life of Jesus. That's Luke chapter 4. Let's go there. While you're finding Luke chapter 4, let me set the stage. Luke chapter 4 takes place after Jesus has already started His ministry in Galilee. He is an itinerant preacher wandering around the northern part of Israel, Galilee, and He is proclaiming His message, healing the sick, and all the while now He's gaining a fantastic reputation. Things are going well for Jesus in Luke chapter 4. Look to verse 14. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about Him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised Him. You might say that this was the honeymoon period of Jesus' ministry. Now, Luke in this passage is going to go to great pains to tell us that as a part of Jesus' traveling ministry in Galilee, He went back to the town in which He was raised, Nazareth, His hometown. And when he went there, it was at a time when there was this positive buzz about Jesus. I, can t I imagine the, the, the townspeople talking amongst themselves. I imagine them saying, yeah, I hear that, that carpenter's kid's working out pretty good. You know, I mean, everybody's talking about him. And every time they talk about him, they mention that that Jesus, that rabbi, he's from Nazareth. He's putting Nazareth on the map pretty good. And guess what? He's, he's coming home. He's here. And when Jesus goes home, he attends the synagogue. Look at verse 16. He went up to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. Well, stop there for a moment because it's important to see this, that Jesus had the custom of regularly attending worship, just like you're doing right now. Jesus went to the synagogues. He participated in the worship. He listened to the reading of the Scripture. He listened to the teaching that came. Now imagine that. Don't you think that He knew more than the teachers who were teaching? Every once in a while, don't you think that He winced at a missed point? Or maybe said to Himself after a wrong interpretation, listen, guys, that's not what I meant there. I can imagine that. But still He went. Because he understood that part of a balanced godly life is joining together in worship. And in the worship of the synagogue, there was a time for Scripture reading and then for a brief explanation, a brief little message on the reading. On this particular day, no doubt, somebody has already read and commented on the section of the Scriptures, the law. But Jesus is handed the scroll of the prophet, and it happens to be the prophet Isaiah. Verse 17, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. Those words give us the indication that Jesus purposefully 
kind of located the passage that he wanted to read. He came with this in mind. See if what he reads sounds familiar. 18, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the captive, for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus reads from the exact passage that we read in Isaiah 61. And when he finishes reading, he sits down. That was the, the way that they taught in those days. They would stand up to read, sit down to teach. And as he sat down, I imagine the whole room leaning in. What is he going to say? Now this famous teacher. And he looked out in the crowd and he saw the boys that he grew up with in Nazareth. And now they're 30-year-old men. He saw the old men who were friends with Joseph. And now they're very elderly. Joseph has probably passed away by this time. He's not in the story. But he sees familiar faces. And he knew that they knew what this Scripture was about. He knew that they knew this Scripture was about the Messiah. How many times over the course of Jesus going to that very same synagogue as a boy did he hear the teaching on this passage and Isaiah's messianic passages? The upshot is this, the deliverer is going to come and it will be the, he will be the Messiah. And what he will do is he will lift up the oppressed and the downtrodden. He will be our liberator. He will be our healer. We'll be able to throw off the Romans. It's all going to be good news. That was the common teaching. And Jesus looks at the faces of those that he knew so well. And he recognized that that's what they hear over and over again. One day the Messiah will come. And what Jesus says when he sits down is absolutely outrageous. Verse 21. And he began by saying to them, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What? Now that's not all that he said. Luke says he began by saying that. He went on to explain f further, and we get the sense that even though that is totally outrageous, the people who are listening don't know how to take it. They're not quite sure what he means. Look, look at verse 22. After he has the little message that where, where the essence of it was that, then he, they say, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. But they questioned, isn't this Joseph's son? See, he leaves them in this state of confusion. They're not hearing what they usually hear. There's, he's saying somehow this has already occurred, but still they're impressed by his teaching. In your hearing, it's taking place. Now, let me tell you what's happening here. We'll start with this saying. Have you ever heard the saying, if you always do what you always have done, you'll always get what you always have gotten? That's worth writing down. If you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always gotten. And what they've always done is they've heard a passage like this, they say amen, and they go home expecting nothing. That's what they've always done. And today what Jesus is doing is he's saying, I'm going to throw a bomb on the status quo. And the first bomb that he throws, they don't quite get. They're upset, but they're confused. And then 
he throws gasoline on the smoldering, smoldering fire. Continue in verse 23. And Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote the proverb to me, Physician, hear yourself. Do here in your hometown what we heard you do in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted to his ho- in, in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon, parentheses, that's a Gentile. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian, parentheses, another Gentile. See, Jesus is pushing them further. Not only is he making a declaration about himself that they don't quite get, now he's demolishing their status quo expectations. He's saying, listen, you know this is a a, a passage about the Messiah, but this Messiah... The true Messiah that Isaiah talked about, not only is he me, but he is for all people, not just for you. I've come for the whole world. Just like Elijah and Elisha, they bless Gentiles as well. It's all happening again, but this time it's not a prophet. This time it's the Christ you have always looked for, and it's me. Now, just in case you're not convinced that that's what he's doing... I want you to see something that we might miss, but they would not miss. Keep your eyes on verse 4, chapter 4, verse 19, as I read its parallel verse in Isaiah 61. Chapter 4, verse 19, you read that. I'm going to read Isaiah 61, verse 2. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. What is missing? In Jesus' words, the day of vengeance. Why? Because what had happened in the intervening time is they have come to think that the Messiah will liberate us and that we will become in charge. He will punish all the non-Jews. We will become the top of the heap. He's all about us and not about them. And not only does Jesus leave that off, he makes the point that is all wrong. The one true Messiah is for everyone. And now come to understand that He is me. And look at their reaction now. 28. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove Him out of the town, and took Him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw Him down the cliff. But He walked right through the crowd and He went on His way. Why? Because He was always in charge of what was going on. At first, they were scratching their heads. Isn't this the the carpenter's son? They didn't quite get what he's saying. But then it all becomes too real and too radical. He does not allow his wonderful promises to become just this dusty, dry, theoretical thing that they have always talked about. This is not business as usual, he says. All of this has come to place in your hearing. So why do I say all this? Because once again, we have come to the season where we read the familiar passages. We sing the familiar songs. What will we do? We must not be like the men of the synagogue in Nazareth who said amen and expected nothing to really happen. We must, with expectancy, look for God. We must 
identify with the mission that the Messiah is on. Why? Because we are the followers of Christ. And one of the missions the mission the Messiah is on is to reach out to hurting people. God does not consider a hurting person a deficient person. God loves them, and He wants to help them, and so should we. Since Jesus came to the needy and the brokenhearted, the second lesson is we need to reach out in a purposeful way and not shrink back from being the arms of love in this Christmas season. There are those around you probably who have suffered loss since last Christmas or who are dreading the songs of this season. We need to help them, be with them, encourage them. And the best way to help the hurting is to point them to Jesus, is to enable them to understand that the greatest burden of life is not your physical pain or it's not your emotional loss or financial difficulty. The greatest burden is that you are separated from God outside of Christ. And Jesus can give you purpose in this life. You can be part of what God is doing and promise for all eternity. He offers mercy and forgiveness to all who call for it. And if you know Christ as Savior today, pray for those who don't. Look for opportunities to bless those who don't. Maybe buy them a book as a a present, something that would be helpful to lead them to ask questions of the Lord Jesus Christ. Invite them to worship. Be active. Love them. Work hard to love them the way Jesus loves them. And then when they ask why, you tell them that the love you have found in Jesus, they're passing on. What is it all about? Hope has come in the form of a person. And that good news is why Christians sing at Christmas and all year round. Let's pray together. Thank you, Jesus, that you understood your job, that you recognized your mission, that you went to the cross for us and you rose again in power. And along the way, you preached and you taught and you acted out that mission of love, which is the model for our lives. Help us to do that. Help us not to see the words on this page as theoretical, but help us to understand things are coming to pass even in our time. We look to you for strength. Bless us, we pray. We depend on your sovereignty, and we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. The team is back to lead us in a closing song. Let's stand as we sing. Go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain. Christ is born. Sing it with me now. Go tell it on the mountain. Over the hills. Everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain. That Jesus Christ is born. While shepherds head their watching over silent flocks by night.
In just a moment, we're going to leave this place, but maybe you're here today and you're saying, you know, I do have an issue for prayer in my life. There's something that's stirred up in me in this holiday season, something that I'm facing or a decision that I'm making, maybe a relationship that needs prayer. We have prayer counselors next to the uh, organ by the prayer table. They will wait for you. You slip forward and enable them to pray over you. You don't have to carry your burdens out. You can lay them down. But first, let's all pray together. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that You love us so much. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came and you sacrificed yourself. And thank you, Holy Spirit, you are among us today, enabling and gifting us to serve you well. So, Lord, we pray that we would say yes to the opportunities to speak words of love, to live lives of love. In this season of rejoicing, fill us with your joy, we pray. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Merry Christmas. See you tomorrow.